Mark chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the, from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, last saying they will respect my son but those vine dressers said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard therefore what will the owner of the vineyard do He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So reads the word of God. If you could please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And here we have a a parable. Now, parable, the the Lord Jesus spoke many parables. They were simple stories used to illustrate spiritual lessons. And we really have a very simple message and a lesson this morning. Um, as we'll, as we'll see. Now, some of these parables make you think. They sort of stretch the brain. Um, they're not, you have to sort of sit and try and interpret them. And often the Lord, the Lord Jesus veiled truth in using parables in order that only those with a spiritual understanding would appreciate them. And often he did this to disarm those who were set so much against him. 
But this parable is very simple. And there's nothing wrong with simplicity, is there? It's an allegorical parable. It's a bit like uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, all the different characters and things. They refer to a certain thing. And it, they, those, the, in Pilgrim's Progress, all those things point to real-world things. And this parable here is very easy to understand. We're not going to have to struggle understanding it. And it was directed at a certain group of people. And it's very clear who they are, as we'll see. That group of people knew that Jesus was speaking this parable about them. There's no uncertainty here at all. We might be in a conversation where someone may say something to us and we sort of left wondering, are they talking to me? Do they mean that thing about to, you know, to me? Well, here we don't have anything like that. It was clear. We're told in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on him. That is the Lord Jesus that feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they, they left him and went away. They knew he was talking about them. They understood what it meant. The Lord Jesus at this time was popular. He healed the sick, um, healed the paralyzed, he gave eyesight to the blind, he raised some from death. And the people were flocking to him for the miracles that he performed. But at the same time, he also spoke to them and taught them about the kingdom of God. And that was really uh, the part of the problem because people weren't liking what he was saying. His claims about himself threatened the position of many, the very people who Jesus was directing this parable to, as we'll see. Enough that they didn't like what he was saying. And they wanted to get rid of him. Get rid of the saviour of mankind. They wanted to kill him. So who are they? In verse 12. It says they sought to lay hands on him. Who are they? Well, let's first put this parable in its context. We're just going to have a little look a bit before go back into chapter 11. Just see what was happening as this parable was told. Where was the Lord Jesus? Well, he was in Jerusalem. 
And in Mark 11 we read at the beginning of that chapter that he enters into Jerusalem in a, this triumphant entry. We read there that many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At this point he's <coughs> popular. But, but he soon begins to upset the authorities. Again in chapter 11 we're told that he goes into the temple. And he begins to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And overturn the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold doves. Now, have we, haven't we heard this before? Yes. At the very start of the Lord Jesus' ministry, he did this very thing, didn't he? He went into the temple and he purged the temple. Some years previous to this. And here he is again. And no one, no one had learned anything. You might think when the Lord Jesus purged the temple the first time. That that would settle the matter. The money changers would leave permanently. That the practice would stop completely. But no. They're soon back again. People often and soon forget. And they returned. And everything was back to normal. For them. And Jesus returns at the end of his ministry. And he has to do the same thing all over again. People don't learn, do they? How fitting that he is here. This place where the people brought their sacrifices. In the next few days he would be himself a sacrifice. Not that far away. And he would give his life as a sacrifice. And these money changers tolerated an interruption to their business the first time. But they wouldn't tolerate it this time. We read in Mark 11 verse 18. The scribes and chief priests heard it. And sought how they might destroy him. That's the Lord Jesus. For they feared him. Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. The money changers wanted uh, to make money. And the Lord Jesus was bad for business. The people weren't listening to the, the sermons of the scribes and uh, chief priests anymore. They were, they were listening to the Lord Jesus. They were, it says they were astonished at his, at his teaching. And these authorities, they should have rejoiced, surely. Here is our Messiah, our Saviour. And he's teaching the people. 
And they're listening. And they're being blessed by what he's saying. But what do we see? We see the very opposite. They reject him. They don't want him anywhere near. They're jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. And they question his authority. And here we see we're at the end of chapter 11. Just before our parable is told. The chief priests, the, the scribes in verse 27. And the elders came to him and they said. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Well, the, he, the Lord Jesus had already answered this question before. It's amazing, isn't it? You can, you can ask the same question and still get the same answer. But you don't take it in. They haven't taken it in. They were more interested in catching him out. Oh, maybe I can get him to say something that we can accuse him of something. You know, that's, that's sort of the, the nature of politics, isn't it? Uh, we've seen that recently in the news with the, um, the party leaders. They've got to be very careful with what they say. Because if they say one thing, that oh, we can use that against them. They never had a true desire to discover the truth. They honoured Abraham and they were very proud that they were descended from him. They saw him as their source of authority, chosen by God. And on another occasion they asked him, Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? This is recorded in John chapter 8. And Jesus said on that occasion... Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now if you're not familiar with this verse, let me just go into that for you. When Jesus said, I am, that was a very significant statement. He directly referenced the words of God himself when he appeared to Moses. In Exodus 3 verse 14. And God said to Moses. I am who I am. And he said. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel. I am. Has sent me to you. The name of God. Well, It's actually a verb. It's a verb. I am. I am who I am. And that's where we get the word Jehovah from. Or Yahweh. God is telling Moses that he is. I am. And here Jesus is telling them that before Moses and before Abraham. I am. That was a very clear statement of who he was. That he is God. God come in the flesh. And this was blasphemy. In the ears of the Jews. And on that occasion they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. That was a miracle. You know, the mob were after him. 
He was able to just pass through the crowd. Well, his time was not yet. It had not yet come for him to go to the cross. But here, in this, in this passage we're looking to here, that time is now very near. And these religious leaders, they were left to stew in their anger. And here they have another opportunity to get him, to question him, to trip him up. And so he tells them this parable. Well, let's look at this parable. Again, there's nothing complicated here. I'm sure we'll all understand it. A man, we're told in, verse, in chapter 12, planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the vine, that, and built a tower. So here is a, a businessman, and he's uh, made a, an investment a sizable investment in a vineyard. Now we're all familiar with this, I'm sure. People set up businesses today. Many thousands of new businesses pop up uh, every year. And uh, many are getting into the whole AI um, uh, revolution at the moment. You know, big data, finding out all sorts of things about you. <laughs> And using that as, uh, as a way to sell you things. It's a business. And this businessman, he takes a risk. He makes this vineyard. And because he makes, takes that risk, he's able to reap the benefits of it. Well, what is this a picture of? Well, God is invested in redeeming man from his sins. And we're all here this morning, we all here as sinners in his sight. He made us in his image, but we are fallen. We have rebelled against God. And through sin, death has come into the world. Have you ever wondered why we die? It's because of sin. In the very moments after Adam and Eve's fall, it looked like all was lost for mankind. But in those very moments after the fall, God had a plan. And we see that in the words that he says in Genesis 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and he was talking to Satan, who had deceived Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking about Eve and her offspring. And between your seed, those who follow Satan, and her seed. That seed, he was talking about the Messiah, the Christ to come. Jesus Christ. And then God says, he shall bruise your head. He will crush your head. Jesus will crush the head of the devil. And you shall bruise his heel. Meaning that he, he would die on the cross. 
the power of what Christ did at the cross. It crushes Satan's empire and removes his tyranny over the souls of men and women. And that's the great plan that God put in place. That's the thing that he is invested in. The seed of the woman comes from a people chosen by God, the nation of Israel. Our parable says that the man leased this vineyard to the vine dressers and went into a far country. And here, the vine dressers are very clearly the leaders of the Jews, the chief priests and the scribes. How can I say that? Well, I can, I can point you to Isaiah 5 verse 7, where it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts, of the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So we have a very clear statement there of what, what the Lord Jesus is referring to. Now when we work for a business, we, re- we represent them, don't we? And the owner has every right to draw a benefit from his investment. And in a similar way, God in his great plan of redemption chose a nation, the nation of Israel. He nurtured it. He taught the people. He led that nation. And God expected them to trust him. He expected them to declare before an unbelieving world that there, that there is a God in heaven. And that he was unlike all the gods of the, that all the other nations worshipped. That was the expectation of God. He expected that his people would obey him. And show the righteousness of, and holiness of God in their lives. You know, we were uh, singing earlier a couple of hymns about the holiness of God. And the faithfulness of God. That's what he expected his people to show in their own lives. Holiness and faithfulness. As those things brought glory to God. And they did that to show all the nations around them who God is. The owner of the vineyard, we read, there comes a point in time when he wants to uh, benefit from his, from his investment. He says, at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And that was his right. He could demand that when the vines were ripe, that he could receive from that fruit. And so also, as God's chosen nation, he expects to see fruit in their lives. He expects them to behave differently from all around them and glorify his character and attributes. And for us here as as Christians, he expects from us the same. Are you Showing fruit in your life. But here, they didn't do that. 
Look at verse 3. What happens? They took him, the servant of the owner, and beat him. And sent him, sent him away empty-handed. God sent servants amongst his people. And during the whole of the Old Testament, we see that happen. One after another, in the prophets that God sent to the people. The servants, they warned the people not to turn away from God. To trust him. To be, to believe in his faithfulness and holiness and God's help. But their words fell on deaf, deaf ears. They didn't want to hear anything of it. They wanted to follow their own plans. They did what was right in their own eyes, we read. And so the message of judgment from those prophets, oh, that's so negative, isn't it? We don't want to hear any of that. So what did they do? They killed them. And that's what often happened in the Old Testament. God sent a prophet. They didn't listen to him. And we read in Hebrews 11, that that's chapter that is a, we all know is, has the, that list of heroes of faith. What happens to the servants of God? They're tortured, refused, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better res resurrection. Some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. God sent prophets what a blessing that would have been what do they do they kill them remember how Jesus wept over Jerusalem 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 you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. And God is long-suffering. God in his grace, he continues to send his servants. He continues to be gracious to us. And in verse 4, again he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head. And sent him away shamefully treated. Now, if maybe sometimes we can put ourselves in this. Um, sometimes we put ourselves in the story, don't we? If, if it were up to me, and I'm glad things are not up to me. You know, if, I'd give up. <laughs> These people, they're hard-hearted, uh, they're stiff-necked people. I wouldn't bother with them anymore. I wouldn't send them any more servants. They clearly, clearly they've shown that they're not interested. Maybe we can have that attitude here in Chelmsley Wood. You know, we don't see many coming in. 
we can think, oh, let's give up. <laughs> we shouldn't do that. God is gracious and shows us long-suffering, sends one prophet after another. And so we go into this area and repeat and say the gospel again to people. God doesn't give up. And in his grace, mercy and faithfulness, he continues to send servants to Israel. And again he sent another in verse 5. And him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. So we see a a pattern here, don't we? And finally, the vineyard owner sends his own son. And it's very clear, isn't it, who this is referring to. God sends the Lord Jesus into the world. His beloved. Remember, at, uh, the, um, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus remember there a voice came from heaven in Matthew 3 verse 17 this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased God sent the prophets servants of God now he sends his son his beloved son And you might think, well, maybe they might not. There may be a reason why they don't listen to the prophets. Because, well, they're sinful, aren't they? They're, they're like us. The prophets were sinners like us. They had their faults. Could it be that they brought problems on themselves? Because, well, they're sinful like everyone else. And when we embark on a work of God for God, we can we may find ourselves in difficulties and we question ourselves, don't we? Is it something I'm doing? Have I said the wrong thing? And we do naturally think that because well we know that we're sinful and that sin comes out in our behaviour. Is there something I haven't thought of? Is there some flaw in my character that is causing all these difficulties I'm facing? But you can't say that of the beloved son, can you? The Lord Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He didn't do anything wrong. The owner of the vineyard says, Surely they will respect my son. And we can think the same. You can think, well, if let's imagine that God, that Jesus could return today, not in the form, not the way of the second coming, but just to come, maybe in a way that He did the first time. But they would, we would reject Him just as much as the first time. Why is that? Well, there is something wrong with Jesus. He is, there's something wrong in that he is perfect and we're sinful. 
we think that there's something wrong with him. When we compare ourselves to him. Because we are comparing ourselves to perfection. When we compare ourselves to God, who is transcendent and holy, as we've sang earlier, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. When we start to ponder and think on that, and the perfection of the Lord Jesus, we see that we fall so short. We're reminded of our true nature. You might remember at school there might have been someone in the class who always got 10 out of 10. And you got 5 out of 10. What did you think? Well, well done. Um, Great that you did so well. I'm so pleased for you. Good for you. More often it was resentment. How dare you. (laughs) How dare you show us up. And that's true for man, isn't it? When Christ comes in his perfection, in his holiness, we feel and know our, our fallenness, how much we fall short of him. We become very aware of the defilement that is in our souls, the sins that we do, those secret things that we do. We think of those, don't we? He exposes us. He shines a light into the parts of our lives we would rather not think about. And maybe that's you here this morning. When you think of the perfection of Christ, you think you're thinking now of your sins that are separating you from him. And that was the case of the chief priests. Even with all their religiosity, they loved darkness instead. And that's our natural state. But a believer who trusts in God, their thoughts are entirely different. And we become Christians. We come to him for forgiveness. And he does forgive us. And when we know that our sins are paid for at the cross, we don't hide from him. In fact, we want the very opposite, don't we? We don't want to run away from him. We want to run to him. We seek him. We want all our sins to be exposed. That was the thought of the psalmist. Didn't he say... Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me. To a believer, that um, Jesus is, is a balm for our souls. To an unbeliever, Jesus is a torment to our souls. He was a torment to these vine dressers. He was a torment to the chief priests and scribes. And then in verse 7, but those vine dressers said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. 
So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. This is exactly what they would do in a few days from now, from here, from this, this, from this point. They will crucify him. The vine dressers think that they can achieve their own heaven on earth. The inheritance will be ours, they think. They thought they could get rid of the vineyard owner and own the vineyard themselves. And it's no different today, is it? Man thinks that they can get rid of God and live life without him. And today people live like the inheritance is theirs. Come, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. They've killed the landowner's son. Well, they've made a fatal mistake. The vine dressers think the vineyard is theirs. But it's not. We must remember that. The devil offered the world to Jesus in the wilderness when he tempted him there. And I often thought, how could, how could the devil do that? Offer Jesus the world? Well, there is a sense in which the world does belong to him. Because the whole world lo- lies under his sway. But only as a tenant. Someone who is paying the rent. And that's what the devil's doing. If we rent a property, I'm sure some of you here are renting a property. One day, you must give that property back to the person who owns it. God owns the world. And the current arrangement sees the devil as a temporary lodger. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And this is exactly what happened. The rejection of the Jews would lead to the salvation of the Gentiles. And we see there in verse 11 that this, is, this was the plan. This was the Lord's doing. And this was what was needed for the gospel to go out throughout the whole world. For uh, Gentiles to become part of the people of God. The stone which the builders rejected, we read in verse 10, has become the chief cornerstone. Well, let's close with some words of application. And really, the message here is very simple. I know, I know some of you make notes, <laughs> but really, we can just sum it up in a few words. And um, Yes, we spent half an hour looking into this, but really the message is very simple. Do we reject Christ? Do we reject Christ? In our passage here, we don't get any indication that the people... 
They didn't understand what was going on. They They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. I think they were very well aware of what they were saying. They understood, but they rejected him. It wasn't a lack of understanding that was a problem, but a matter of the heart, a plain rejection of Christ. And that's often the case, isn't it, when we talk to people? Um, I find that I can use all sorts of arguments. Sometimes I come up with a good argument, but it doesn't seem to have any impact. They reject Christ. Are you rejecting Christ? And we sung earlier of the holiness of God, the faithfulness of God. And as I prayed uh, in our prayer earlier, uh, we pray for thankfulness for all the blessings that we have from God day by day. And it's possible to live in a Christian environment to have all the blessings of that. To live in a country that has had a, a Christian heritage like ours. We're not living in the Middle East. Under the power of Islam here. We have all of those blessings. If we're children of Christian parents. We have the blessing of uh, their influence in our, in our lives. They've taught us from the Bible from since we were very young. But do we reject Jesus? The Jews had all the Old Testament scriptures. When you think of all the blessings that they had, the presence of God as he led them through the wilderness, the cloud and the fire, the types of the temple and the tabernacle and the, the sacrifices, the visible provision of God when he provided manna in the wilderness, the protection of God, all those blessings. Yet they did not bear any fruit. Do we reject Christ? If we do, one day God will give that vineyard to others. He is described here as the chief cornerstone. And if you are aware of of building and construction, you know that the the cornerstone, that's the the first stone that goes into the ground. And then everything's built around it. Do we build our lives on Christ, who's our chief cornerstone? Jesus is described as a rock of offence that we must get over. At some point in our lives, we must confront this stone. And I urge you, if you're not a Christian, that you, that you, you sort this out as soon as you can. Because if you don't, it will continue 
to be a stone of stumbling in your life until you sort it out. I plead with you to come to Christ and then build your life on him. You can't build your life on anything better. Everything else is like sinking sand. There's a hymn, isn't there? That says that. If we build our lives on Christ, we're building on a solid stone. Well, which stone are you building your life on? Are you rejecting Christ? Oh, I urge you to come to him. Ask him to forgive you. And he'll take you. He'll bless you. He'll continue to bless you. Um, There are many here who have been Christians for many years. We stumble, we sin, over and over and again. And over and over again, God continues to be gracious and shows us his grace and favour.